Greg, would you give the old preacher guy some more light up here, please? Thank you. I can see, I can see, which is going to fit right into my sermon because you can't see in the dark, right? Okay. I want you to turn, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. That's what we're looking at this morning, Matthew 4, 12 to 17. My oldest son, Gabriel, was here not long ago uh, on a week when we didn't have children's church. And his comment afterwards was, how does anybody pay attention or think? It's just a dull roar in there of kids all the time. And I said, I just love every minute of it too. So he's got to find a church where they have some kids, I guess. So. All right. I want to begin by talking a little bit about what goes on in Barrow, Alaska, where the people live in darkness, and it's a dead-end proposition in many ways. Uh, someone has written, in Barrow, Alaska, the most northern city of the United States, they experience up to 67 days every year in complete darkness. Above the Arctic Circle, they experience these days of darkness with the sun setting in the middle of November and not rising again until the end of January. The long darkness, they say, produces seasonal depression, suicidal thoughts, lethargy, and rampant alcoholism. God did not design us for isolation, and is certainly not for isolation for long periods of time, as we experienced uh, when they shut everything down in our country. Uh, all kinds of problems. Uh, counselors were booked to the uh, max, and they couldn't get enough people in. It bothered our kids. It bothered adults. And uh, we saw rises in alcoholism and suicide and all those issues. Isolation for long periods of time can drive a person to experience various psychoses in life. God did not design humans to be able to function well in isolation. We are meant to be dependent on one another and care about one another and encourage one another. That's what God intended, and certainly for not long periods of darkness, and just think they experience that every year there and these same problems. That also goes for things in the spiritual realm, and that's, of course, what we want to talk about. Spiritual darkness is not where God wanted us to live. Spiritual darkness is not what God's design for us is. So we'll turn to something that Dr. Blomberg said as he was commenting on this passage. He says this, light versus darkness, as consistently in Scripture, refers to the knowledge of or obedience of, to God versus the ignorance of or disobedience to his revelation. Jesus illuminates God's purposes and brings liberation from oppression. In John 8, 12, he calls himself the light of the world. And we need to understand that men are conceived in darkness, they are born in darkness, and they live in darkness without uh, the light of Christ, and they need the light of Christ. Every person does. It is light versus darkness right now in this world. And Jesus came to bring life-giving truth. And I'm going to use truth and light as interchangeable. Jesus came to bring life-giving truth to those who had settled or reside in or dwell in darkness. This world is under the control of Satan, and he is the little g God of this world. That's what the Bible says. And uh, we'll see that as we go through here. We live in a dark kingdom but we have been given the light of the truth of the kingdom of God, and we're to shine that light in this dark kingdom, and that has to be the truth of, about Jesus and who he is. 
He brought an age-old message to those who would listen in the message of eternal life when Jesus came. I want to read our text this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, and we're going to go down through verse 17, where it says this. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, remember last time John the Baptist has been arrested and taken into custody by Herod, he withdrew into Galilee. So what he's saying, he gets the news about John being arrested. Now he's going to take a trip and he's going to end up uh, in northern uh, Galilee above the Sea of Galilee. Anyway, he withdraws to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, which Matthew doesn't say anything about, but we're going to read something about his time in Nazareth. So on his way when he's, when he's leaving uh, to go into uh, Galilee, he goes through his hometown where he grew up in Nazareth, and we're going to read what happened there. Uh, Matthew doesn't do that. He came and settled in Capernaum, and you remember Capernaum is Peter's hometown, the Apostle Peter, that's where he lived which is by the sea. Well, and I got to go there when you sent us to Israel, and uh, there's ruins that they left there, and then the Catholic Church built this great big monument over the place where Peter's house was supposedly at, and there's really nothing under there that you can see, but it's an archway, and it marks that spot. You can see the sea very easily from there, and there's also the remains of a synagogue there, but it's just the floor of the synagogue. Uh, they're not really sure that floor was original to Peter's day. They think it might have been changed, but there are some rocks and things out there that would have gone into the masonry work that were original. And to think that our Lord, you know, was in that place, and I can't say maybe on the, those rocks in the floor, but he was there, and he also taught the word of God, and he spent a lot of time in Capernaum where Peter lived. Anyway, that's where he's going to go which is by the sea. So if you have the Sea of Galilee and you go up to the very top of it, just move it a little bit to the west, and that's where Capernaum was. And that's the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, two of the sons of, of Israel, Joseph, uh, Jacob. This was to fulfill what was written through Isaiah the prophet. Now understand this, all right? He said, Jesus hears about John the Baptist. He's arrested, and Jesus now is making a strategic move in his ministry and the text is telling us, Matthew writes and says, what he's doing, which is just simply traveling somewhere, was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. So we're starting to understand that everything Jesus does, everywhere he goes, everything he says has been planned by his father, and he has dedicated himself to following that plan exactly. The land, in verse 15, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Now he's quoting from the Isaiah passage. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness. Now he's talking about spiritual darkness of this world that Satan rules over. People who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Wonder who, wonder who that was. It was Jesus. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death. So we are, we're to connect the idea of darkness with death, and not just physical death, but eternal death if people don't know the true light. And those were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Now, it's for that reason I want to read the account about when he went to Nazareth so we can see what, what's being talked about there. And then in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, so here's the content of his preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's here. 
It's not just near, it's here. So let's uh, break this down. We're going to start looking at verses 12 and 13 together. And that's when Jesus hears the news. John's in prison and uh, he's going to withdraw from that area. He's going to go up into Galilee. He's also going to stop through Nazareth, which is going to be on the way. And we'll read about that. But what I want us to understand here, if you're following along in your uh, bulletin and uh, we're we're on point one here, Jesus, at the news of John's arrest, moves into Galilee and then settles in Capernaum. I just said what it just said, right? And the reason I want you to know that is because there's a reason why he goes there. Jesus did not sit around wondering, hey, I wonder what I'm going to minister today. I wonder where I'm going to go today. Maybe I'll go to Upper Galilee, or maybe I'll go down south to the Negev, or maybe I'm going to go here or go there. I wonder, wonder what God has for me. No. There was no question. He knew exactly where he was supposed to go. The Spirit of God was leading him and guiding him into the things that God had planned for him. And by the way, that's the way our life should go every day. To let the Spirit of God guide us and take us where he wants us to be for ministry, where he wants us to be so that we can be valuable for the kingdom, doing what he wants us to do. We have the same Holy Spirit dwelling in us that Jesus Christ had dwelling in him. Remember the baptism that we just studied about? And that spirit guided Jesus, gave Jesus the power to do what he did, and that spirit dwells in you if you know Jesus as your Savior. And the Spirit of God would like to guide you and help you in the ministry that he has planned out for you. Jeremiah said, I know the plans that God has for you for good and not for evil, and God has plans for each one of us. And God has a plan that he wants us to do every day. And the interesting thing about this is Jesus never strays from God's plan. Not one day did Jesus ever stray away from the plan that God had for him that day. Now he's on a journey. Why? Because Isaiah said he would. And God is perfect in his understanding of of the future. And so that's what's happening. So things are happening according to God's timetable. They always happen according to God's timetable. It's exciting to watch what's happening in our world and how it's crumbling. I like to say we're deteriorating right on schedule, and we can see signs that the end is near, that that Jesus Christ may may blow the, the trumpet for us to come and join him in the sky and be raptured, and then the tribulation is going to begin sometime after that. Uh, We can see the signs of the times. We know that the coming is near. These things are happening according to the word of God. God has already planned it all out. He knows everything that's going to happen. And uh, I've kind of been praying more and more, God, we know what you want in this world. Would you please make it happen? Would you make it happen quickly? May nothing stand in the way of you getting your program done, and nothing will. God is always working. And I don't believe there are anything like accidents. Even when bad things are happening, God knew it's part of his plan and he will work it out. Well, news reaches Jesus that the man preparing the way for him, we call him John the Baptizer, has been thrown into prison. This is because John the Baptizer was also a preacher, a prophet of God. And he uh, had the courage to point out to Herod, who's in charge of the whole territory, his moral failure because he has a wife, her name is Herodias, but it happens to be his brother Philip's wife. And John recognized in the Old Testament that's illegal. A man may not take his brother's wife if his brother is still alive. And that's what was going on. And uh, that, that's verified for us if you want to look in chapter 14. 
And in verse 3, for when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. So John was preaching, you're, you're uh, out of bounds with God. What you're doing is illegal and you need to repent of it. And of course, Herodias didn't like it and Herod didn't like it. Nobody likes to listen to people talk about their sin and talk about what's wrong with them. We sometimes, you know, want to get away from that. It's also true, the Bible says, that Herod liked listening to John speak. Uh, he was mad at the guy for pointing out his sin, but he, he kind of liked to hear John preach, but not about his own sin. John is going to lose his head, literally, over this, this subject of his preaching. And that's because ministry is personally costly to those who follow Jesus at various times. Jesus moves away from the Jordan into the Galilee. And that's because he's going to fulfill scripture and he follows the Father's plans uh, down to the minutest detail for that ministry. So Jesus leaves Nazareth and uh, relocates in Capernaum, Peter's hometown, which is the in the ancient territories of Zebulun and Naphtali, as that's what Isaiah said. He first goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he preaches in the synagogue there. Uh, but that doesn't go well. Now, Matthew chose not to include that in his gospel for the argument that he's making for Christ, but Luke did. So I'd like you to turn there, and let's see what he was doing in Nazareth in chapter 4. And remember, uh, Luke 4, Matthew 4, is the testing of Jesus Christ in the wilderness, so we're coming off of that as well in the book of Luke, in, here in chapter 4. Verse 16, Jesus is traveling. And he comes to Nazareth in verse 16 of Luke 4, where he had been brought up. In other words, that's where he was raised. That's where Joseph and Mary took him after they finally came up out of Egypt. They went all the way up to Nazareth. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogues, because that's where you find religious Jewish people on, on Saturday. You find them at the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up and read. And the book of the prophet, that's really the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, was handed to him. So I want you to understand this, that the, uh, um, mark my spot there. What's happening is this. When, when we went to Capernaum, uh, when, you, when you see the layout of the temple, or the synagogue, not the temple, the synagogue, that's where the local people would worship every Saturday. Only a few times did they go to the temple a year, at least three, to worship in the temple. So this is where they would have their, their service where they join with others and worship with God. And it was actually facing the sea, so we're on the south side of it, and it's all laid out there. There's, there's no walls. All you see is the floor and maybe a few of the blocks around the outside. But it's obvious that you walk in a door over here, or you can go to the other side, there's a door. If you walk through that, right in the middle of the two doors at the front of the church that's on the south side would be a chair there. And that chair was probably made out of stone or, or somebody had crafted one out of wood. And there's this chair there. That chair is called the seat of Moses. And when you sat in the seat of Moses and you taught what Moses taught, people better listen because this is the word of God coming from a servant of God in the chair of Moses. And everybody accepted Moses as authoritative. You better listen to what he says. Jesus is going to be seated in the chair of Moses. And they hand him a scroll. And the scroll came from a little push cart that had two wheels on the front and some 
things to hold it up level on the back, and it wasn't very big, not much bigger than the top of this pulpit here, and they would keep their scrolls that that synagogue had in that ark, they called it. They called that the ark. Not the ark Noah built, but they called this an ark. And somebody reaches in and they grab this, one of the scrolls of Isaiah. It, it was so big it probably had to be two or three scrolls. And they grabbed that scroll of Isaiah. And then they handed it to the Lord. <clears throat> so in verse 17, and, he, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. I find it interesting that it doesn't say he asked for that book in particular. And he opened the book or the scroll, so he's unrolling it. That takes a little while. And he found the place where it was written. By the way, <clears throat> they didn't have paragraphs and verse divisions and stuff like that. It's amazing. Jesus rolls to that place. And the spirit of Yahweh is upon me, Jesus read, as he's at the seat of Moses. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. To proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. And he closed or he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant because every ark has an attendant and they take care of the scrolls. And he sat down. So he's sitting in the seat of Moses. Time to listen. This is authoritative. And the people in there, their eyes were all uh, fixed upon him. Verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I don't know if instantly they made the connection and thought, he's talking about himself. Some did, I think. Some didn't understand it because Isaiah wrote it. Some still thought that's just Isaiah talking about him. But Jesus said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering about the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Is this one of our hometown boys? I can't, wow, I can't believe what's coming out of him. That's, it's fantastic. And that's not going to last for long. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Jesus is anticipating the rejection that's coming from the crowd in his hometown, people he grew up around, people he knew, adults he knew, old people that he knew. And he said, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, Heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, because he'd already been there before, do here in your hometown as well. They're not going to go by faith. They want him to prove he is who he says he is. If this scripture is being fulfilled, then do some miraculous stuff like what we heard happened in other areas, and then we might believe. And Jesus calls this generation a foolish and unbelieving generation who has to have a sign before they can believe. And that's what's happening here in Nazareth. In verse 24, he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. You understand this? Jesus already has the crowd mad at him. So he decides to say something that's really going to make them mad. And he's talking to, now he's talking to a whole synagogue full of un, unbelieving Jewish people that will not listen to what he's saying. He says, let me tell you a truth. In the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, there was a great famine that came over the land. Everybody's with him. Yeah, we know that. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. She's a Gentile. 
And they know that. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian, also a Gentile. And both of these illustrate that God had no one in his territory that he could use to help somebody, so he sends them outside of Israel to Gentiles. And that made these Jews' blood boil. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. That's a mild way to put it. And when they heard these things, how dare you say God would choose a Gentile dog over us? And they got up and drove him out of the city. Now, I doubt there was too many times that they removed a teacher from the seat of Moses in their own synagogue, but they removed Jesus, and they're going to haul him out because on Nazareth there is this cliff up above the city, and that's where the city was built around that, and we got to go there and look at that. And they took him up on this cliff to throw him off, and I'm, I can guarantee it's far enough you'll die if they throw you off of there. And they got up there, drove him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. We're going to kill the hometown boy because of what he said. But passing through their midst, <laughs> he went his way. What? And passing through their midst, he went away. That tells us a bunch of stuff. You have a mob of people. Nobody there looks like Jesus but Jesus. The mob has one purpose, kill this kid. And they take him to the brow. He gets up there, and they're going to throw him off. And he just passes through their midst and goes his way. <laughs> How'd that happen? You have a mob of people. They're there to kill him, and he just walks through their midst and goes away. And apparently it left everybody standing there saying, okay, where's the guy we brought here to kill Anybody find him? Where's he at? What happened? Look over the cliff. Did he already fall over? He's gone. And the other thing we learn is they're not in charge. They couldn't put Jesus to death if they wanted to because that wasn't God's plan for Jesus. God is in, in charge. And Jesus simply did what Isaiah said he would do, and he leaves for Capernaum. He already knew he had to go to Capernaum when they took him out to kill him. This is not my time. This is not the way. And so he just walks right through them. And that's the power of God. I want you to remember, Satan and evil people may threaten you with what they're going to do. Rest assured, they can't touch you unless God has allowed it. And if God allows it, it must be good for me. Remember, they're not in charge. We serve the one who is in charge. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. Well, anyway, back to our Matthew 4 passage. Jesus made his way and he connected with where he was supposed to go in the first place. And he goes into the territory of Upper Galilee and uh, these ancient tribes are mentioned for us because that's their territory. And he's on the move, and the next verses tell why he's on the move, verses 14 to 16. And what we learned there is that Jesus is following perfectly the plan of the Father for his ministry. I would like to be able to say that for me. I would like for you to be able to say that for you. 
Are you following the plan that Jesus made for you, for your life and your ministry, and are you fulfilling it? All of us are responsible for that. All of us should be doing that. And there'd be nothing more exciting than for us to do that in our life, wherever God has put us. So that's an encouragement. In Matthew excuse me, 4.14, Matthew points out that this move was planned for Jesus by the Father hundreds of years before it took place. And the purpose for Jesus moving away from the Jews in Nazareth and the Jordan was because Isaiah, the prophet of God, had prophesied in his prophecies that Jesus would do this. When did Isaiah do that? Well, uh, no less than 739 years prior to its happening. Tell me God's not in charge. I can't even make a prediction about what I'm going to do tonight uh, with 100% with accuracy all the time because I don't know what's going to happen. God promises something, not just 739 years, but thousands of years in some cases, and it turns out exactly as God prophesied that it would. He's in control. So even the exact journey that Jesus was taking was meticulously planned by his father so that he would be in the place the father wants him to be at the time he wants him to be there. The time had come for ministry, for Jesus to get, a, get underway, and John's ministry and his work are fast coming to a close. John himself will say, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. His time in Nazareth is his first major rejection by his own hometown people, made up of many Jews. There is a foreshadowing here on the future of his ministry. In verse 15, the plan of God was for him to go to Galilee, then to Nazareth, and then up the coast to the Sea of Galilee, to the top at Capernaum. And that's exactly what uh, we would read about, and I guess I'm going to read about it, in Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 1 and 2. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And that's Jesus. And that's exactly what he's done. And that's what was predicted. And Matthew points that out for us. For a while, Jesus will be uh, settling in Capernaum. And uh, Noel and I thank, thank God and thank you for the chance to be able to see where that actually was taking place. In verse 16, a great light was coming to the people who had settled in darkness. You know, once somebody settled somewhere, they kind of like it. They don't like to move. They don't want things to be changed. And God says to us that in the darkness of this world, which is Satan's darkness, the worldly people have settled in. And I want to read about that dark kingdom just briefly. John chapter 12, verse 46. In John 12, 46, speaking about the dark kingdom, it says, uh, I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. See, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you're in the dark. You're in Satan's kingdom. And there's only one way to get out, and his name is Jesus. Acts 26, 18 is another one. Acts 26, 18. And it says, 
Uh, he's talking about rescuing the Jewish people. Uh, and uh, he says in verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan, that's darkness, to God, he's light, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who have been sanctified, in other words, made holy by faith in me. That's what Jesus said. You want to go to heaven? You want to be sanctified? You want to get into the light and get out of the darkness? You must put your faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. I want to read a uh, situation here uh, that uh, is, it was actually written in 2018, but it uses a poll that's from 20, 2007. And that's because people don't pay to do these polls all the time. So that would be uh, the most recent one. But it's uh, called this, and it's by a man named Mike Mariani. And it's in a, uh, a publication called American Exorcism. And he says this, while the United States is gradually becoming more spiritual and less religious, see he's talking about becoming more spiritual in the occult, less religious in Christianity, polls show that that belief in the paranormal is on the rise. Polls conducted in recent decades by Gallup and the data firm YouGov suggest that roughly half of Americans believe demonic possession is real. The percentage of those who believe in the devil is even higher and, in fact, has been growing. Gallup polls show, and this is the 2007 one, that the number rose from 55% in 1990 to 70% in 2007. So you have to wonder, where is it today? I, I believe it's much higher. But why is belief in demons on the rise when belief in Christian faith is declining? Everybody in a good church asks that question. It seems people seek spiritual fulfillment through the occult. Uh, occult I'm sorry, Carlos Eri, a historian at Yale, said, and I quote, as people's participation in Orthodox Christianity declines, and it is, there always has been a surge in interest in the occult and the demonic. 